In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. The sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Well, I must say, things have been weird this week. Very weird. It's hard to explain why. There's just been a general vibe of peculiarity, an outlandish feel to everything I've done. Almost like existence itself is haunted. And speaking of haunted... Contributing author and friend of the show, L.R. Cole, has a new book out. It's called The Ghosts You Know, Five Haunted Tales Before Bedtime. Sometimes distinguishing what's real or imagined can be a decidedly arduous task. In the end, it always seems wiser to stay close to those ghosts you know. It's available in paperback and ebook format. Some of the stories may seem familiar to listeners of the show. Some will be entirely new. All of them will leave you with a lingering sense of unease. Links are in the show notes on where you can buy this fantastic book. But beyond that, things are going smoothly, aside from the aforementioned strange feeling. I registered my interest in booking a stay in Gold Meadow, and I'm waiting to hear back if I'm one of the lucky ones to get a place in the first batch of visitors. Another strange thing recently is that I've been having an overwhelming desire to watch movies. The problem is I can never decide on what to watch. I'm considering asking a friend to help me choose. (sighs) Movie nights, man. There's something special about them. You know? Magical. Sharing an experience with someone you really care about. Moments remember. Doesn't matter if the movie is shitty, or the acting is bad, or if there's plot holes all over. In the end, it's all about the people you're with. Man, you gotta watch this part. You'll love this. I say, popcorn flying all over as I flail my arms around excitedly. Yes. I am one of those people. Freddy doesn't seem to mind. Most people hate it when I talk too much, or when I get a little too animated. But Freddy, Freddy really gets me, you know? He knows I mean nothing by it. He doesn't even wince, old Freddy. What a champ. 
<laughs> Did you see that shit? I punch him playfully in the shoulder. Freddy and I go way back. Old pals, you know? <laughs> it's, it's Freddy, right? Yeah, has to be. He's got that, uh, that face. Freddy. Fred. Fred, Fred, Fred. Frederick, the F train. A little on the shy side, old Freddy. Doesn't talk much. That's all right, though, Freddy. I can do the talking. Freddy. Freddy. I say, stuffing my face with yet another fistful of popcorn. This is it. One hell of a movie, man. He'd never admit it, but he loves it. I can tell. He doesn't want to love it, but he does. That's Freddy for you. Don't let those dead old eyes fool you. He's a barrel of emotions, that one. Real softy when push comes to shove. Look at him, shaking all leaf-like. Oh, he's feeling it all right. Oh, man, this is my favorite part. I nudge him. Remember this part, Freddy? Sure he does. He saw it live not an hour ago. I could tell already, then, that he'd love the director's cut. See? I told you. I lean forward to get a better angle. I fucked up when I cut her throat. There's not enough blood. That's why I had to do the second take. Freddy cheers me on by wailing hysterically. We're all different, Freddy. We all show excitement in different ways. I mean, your wife. That was smooth. I note with professional interest. She bled out in seconds. She didn't fight back. Like your daughter. Just calmly accepted it. Respect. He's rocking back and forth in the couch wildly. I guess the rope will hold a little while longer. Soon, at the end credits now, I pat him on the back. I gotta say, Freddy, this has been an enjoyable evening. We should do it again sometime. Freddy is such a stand-up fellow, he doesn't want me to leave. I can tell. I know Freddy. We go way back. All right. All right. I say, rewinding the tape. Just... One more time. Yeah? What is this? The tenth viewing? You must really dig this movie, Freddy. Can't say I blame you, though. It's a true masterpiece. Movie nights, man. There's something special about movie nights. On second thought, perhaps I shouldn't ask author Tor Anders Ulven about movies. Hmm. Oh well. In our first tale, we're privy to a recording made by a man in a very strange situation. 
His current therapist is retiring, and the replacement needs to be caught up to speed. Why not just read the patient files, you ask? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author E.T. Webster, the case is so strange that it can only be told straight from the horse's mouth. Performing this tale is Jeff Clement. So try not to worry about patient-doctor confidentiality. This scenario is far too strange to keep private. Let the world find out why this man can't stop licking bathroom floors. Uh, hello? Testing one, two, three... So, Dr. Haskins asked me to record this to help with continuation of care. Um, I'm sure he'll be going over all the treatment notes and stuff with you, but he said it would be good to have my narrative all in one place for you as well. Dr. Haskins is a really nice guy, and I hope he enjoys his retirement, but I'm going to miss him. No offense to the new guy, of course. Okay, so the big issue, I guess, is that I love licking bathroom floors. Um, I like to spread my tongue out as wide as I can and then get down real low, like pushing myself across the floor. Because when you do it that way, you can barely see more than like three inches in front of you. And so you have this little window of time where you see a stain coming, but you don't know what it's going to taste like yet. Is it going to be salty or sweet or pungent or what? I mean, I mean, I can kind of guess based on the color sometimes, but. I still get surprised from time to time. Oh, and uh, sometimes I'll hit something sticky that's run down between two tiles, and I'll have to try to get it out with just the tip of my tongue. Um, when that happens, uh, I like to drool on it a little bit to soften it up, and then I can usually get it out. Uh, Sorry, I have to put some of my medicine on. The sores on my tongue have almost healed up, and the ones on my lips are are better too. Um, They keep the bathroom floor really clean here, and they don't use any chemicals on it. Just lots of hot water, I guess. It's not as good as, you know, like a truck stop bathroom, but I guess I'm doing better. There was one time before I came here that I got these, like, really hard blisters all over the insides of my cheeks. Like a a bunch of hot, like, pomegranate seeds. You know, pretty small and hard. And then when they burst, there was, like, some blood and pus inside. Still no idea what caused that. Anyway, um, I'm supposed to be telling you my narrative, not complaining. Narrative is what Dr. Haskins calls my story, because he's too nice to say that he thinks I'm full of shit. 
so I was about halfway through college when this happened. I was sharing an apartment with a, a guy named Nathan. The way it was set up, there were uh, two bedrooms and the bathroom was in between them. Like, uh, there was a door from each bedroom to the bathroom and then the rooms also opened onto a hallway. And there was, you know, a kitchen and like a room that was a combination dining slash living room. Anyway, it was way nicer than I could afford on my own, which is why when Nathan said that he was dropping out and moving back home, I was frankly a bit ticked off. But he was like, ah, don't worry, I found this guy to take over my part of the lease. He's really cool, he goes to our school and he keeps to himself most of the time. So I was like, okay, fine. It's just a few more weeks until the quarter's over and then break, and then if it's really bad, I can find somewhere else to live. So Nathan introduced me to this guy, Greg Vance, who's taking over the lease, and, well, Greg was weird. For one thing, he was obviously way older than a regular college student. Like, like his hair was thinning a little at the top, and... He just looked unhealthy. He was really skinny, really pale. Uh, he had these big, thick glasses, and frankly, the dude kind of stunk. I mean, he smelled like beer that's been left sitting in the sun for too long, you know? Musty. Anyway, Nathan helped Greg move all these boxes and suitcases and stuff into his old room, and Greg put some food in the fridge, and for a few days, I thought things were going to work out okay. I didn't really see the guy at all. He was in his room pretty much all the time, typing on his computer. And that bothered me a little bit, because he typed, like, really loud, and it seemed like he was at it pretty much 24-7. But I just started wearing headphones while I was studying and putting on music at night to go to sleep, so... You know, no big deal. The bigger deal was that Greg would not help around the apartment at all. Me and Nathan had had a system worked out where we'd clean up after ourselves and then there was a rotation on who would clean the common areas once a week. Greg would just leave dirty dishes on the table, counter, in the sink. And if I didn't wash them, then they would just sit there getting grosser and grosser. I left probably a dozen notes for him, but when that didn't work, I knew I had to talk to him. Sorry, all this talking is making some sores break open. Okay, so here's what I saw when I opened his door to talk to him. He had one of the biggest computer setups I'd ever seen in person five monitors all covered in lines of code and different graphs and charts and stuff like something out of a cheap sci-fi show. On the wall behind the computer were printouts of, I guess, MRI scans or CAT scans of the brain. You know those cross sections with different parts lighted up? Hundreds of them. And then laying on the desk was this thing shaped like a hairdryer, um, connected to the computer by a thick black cable. The front of it had all these uh, protrusions, these 
things sticking out. I think maybe they were metal. Anyway, I didn't get a good look, and I definitely didn't get a chance to talk about chores because Greg absolutely flipped out, jumped out of his chair in front of the computer, pushed me out of his room, just yelling at me about coming in without knocking at his privacy and everything. Uh, so, yeah. Basically decided to just keep the apartment clean myself. And once the quarter was over, I was out of there. And I, I really think that would have been it if the girls hadn't started coming over. I'd come out of my room in the morning, and there'd be some random girl on her own way out, wearing boxers and a t-shirt, poking around the kitchen for a clean bowl and some cereal. The only thing they had in common was that they were all hot, like cheerleader hot. And I told you about Greg already, right? I mean, these girls were obviously way, way out of his league. Told myself it wasn't any of my business, but I couldn't help but wonder what was going on, you know? Like, maybe Greg was rich, or, or was doing their assignments for them, or... Hey, he had all that computer equipment, maybe he was a, a hacker and he was blackmailing them or something. But like I said, I decided that it really wasn't any of my business and I was pretty focused on just riding out the corner. But then one morning, the girl eating breakfast at my table was Amber. No mistaking her. She had this curly, strawberry blonde hair and the bluest eyes in the world. Man, she'd been my grade school crush, and then my best friend in high school, and I knew for a fucking fact she would never willingly sleep with a guy like Greg. Not for money, not for grades, not for blackmail, period. I spun on my heel, marched back through the bedroom, and found Greg brushing his teeth in the bathroom. I grabbed his shoulders, spun him round, and slammed him hard up against the bathroom wall. The toothbrush went flying out of his mouth, and his eyes were wide behind his thick glasses. I yelled at him to leave Amber alone. I remember telling him, I don't know what your deal is, and I don't fucking care, but you never go near her again. He opened his mouth to say something, but I just wound up and punched him square in the nose. Now, I'm not really a puncher, probably lucky I didn't break my knuckles or something. Greg's nose started bleeding, though. He cupped his hands around it and ran back into his room, leaving a trail of blood across the tile floor. I went back out of the living area, but Amber was gone. I tried calling her between classes all day that day, but I wasn't able to reach her. When I got back to the apartment, it was obvious Greg had locked himself in his room again. I made cup ramen for dinner and sat there wondering what the hell was going on, you know? Wondering if I should call the police or uh, talk to the university or you know, what. I went to sleep that night and woke to a heavy weight pressing me down into the bed and a tight circle of metal protrusions pushed against the side of my skull. There was a high-pitched whine, and that's it. That's the end of my narrative.
I know Dr. Haskins has talked to my original roommate, Nathan, and he swears up and down that he was in school and in that apartment all quarter and that I was the one locking myself away in my room for days at a time. I know the name never changed on the lease. I know Amber says she never met Greg. I know the university doesn't have any records on him. And look, intellectually, I know that in reality, there's not some random weirdo with a mind control ray gun out there. But that's what I remember. Just like I remember waking up the next morning and finding the door to Greg's room open and the room empty like no one had ever been there. Just like I remember turning and seeing those dark red spots of dried blood on the tile floor and kneeling down, already salivating in anticipation. I mean, I love licking bathroom floors. It's important to have a role model growing up, a hero that you can learn from and aspire to be like, someone who can teach you all those lessons that you might just ignore when they come from parents or teachers. And in this tale, shared with us by author Doug Mallett, we learn of one such idol from that most beloved of institutions, children's television. I perform this tale alongside Jessica McAvoy, Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, and Nicole Goodnight. So let's be grateful that they're bringing the classics back. Who doesn't love a reboot? We're going to learn from the best as we receive Life Lessons with Dweeb Higgins. behavior of an entire generation can, in part, be credited to Dweeb Higgins. He was a friendly face, a reliable teacher, a daily presence that filled the mushy gray matter of impressionable children with lessons that would last a lifetime. Kids found him entertaining, parents found him educational, networks found him profitable, until he wasn't. He was a TV puppet, and he died the only death a TV puppet can. He was cancelled. That was 30 years ago. Today, Jody stands in front of a large, windowless building. Satellites rise like rusting horns from the rooftop. It's a terribly plain building. But Jody still looks at it with wonder because inside there is a world of possibilities. The job hunt has been a grind. 
the rejections being outnumbered only by those that never responded at all. All of those potential jobs were just that, though. Jobs. Clerical work, pushing paper. They would pay the bills, and yes, she needed to pay the bills. But this job, the possibility inside this terribly plain building, this was a job she wanted. Have you heard of the show? The producer sits behind a small desk. She scours a notepad, finding Jody's name and adding a little check beside it. She hasn't offered her own name yet, and Jody would be too preoccupied to remember anyway. She's been rehearsing answers to possible interview questions all day, and there's been little room to think about much else. She couldn't tell you what she had for breakfast, but if asked where she sees herself in five years, she could tell you all about how writing for the rebooted Dweeb Higgins show is the perfect start to writing her own children's book, without so much as a single um or uh. And yes, she's heard of the show. Oh, definitely. When I was little, I used to watch every morning. He'd teach you how to brush your teeth, how to tie your shoes... I think I even learned not to touch a hot stove. Jody can say all of this with confidence, because it's true. Life Lessons with Dweeb Higgins was can't-miss television for preschool Jody. So much that she learned in school has faded in the decades since graduation. Calculus and stoichiometry underutilized to the point of erasure. But Jody has never forgotten things like Dweeb Higgins' rule of sharing. S-T-R-A-N-G-E. Strange. Sharing totally rocks and nurtures great energy. So get out there and get strange, kids, Dweeb would often say. It's just so great that you're bringing it back. We think this new generation needs Dweeb, but we need to make sure we meet the demands of the modern child. Things have changed. It's a spiel the producer has given before, just as rehearsed as Jody's own answers. Jody agrees. They sure have. But? The song comes so naturally. A theme song she sang a hundred times as a little girl. Even as an adult, Jody sometimes finds herself humming it. An earworm sleeping soundly in her subconscious occasionally waking to the sweet smell of nostalgia. All you need is a friend like Dweeb to learn a lesson. The producer smiles, charmed. The smile puts Jody at ease. So far, everything is going exactly as rehearsed. We'll let you know when they're ready. She returns to her notepad. So many more names to check. Jody spends the wait perusing the artwork in the small lobby. Old vintage posters of the Life Lessons with Dweeb Higgins show. The posters are very much of their time, the early 90s. Old, colorful, blocky letters spell out the show's name. There are rainbows and shooting stars, and in the middle is our host. 
Dweeb Higgins. The creators of Dweeb Higgins have done their low-budget best to make him look human. They have mostly failed. He's about the size of a man, only ever seen from the waist up. His head is a bit too small, his skin a bit too tight and rubbery. His hair is a tangled travesty. His expressions are limited to looking either shocked or confused. For this poster, they've at least gone with shocked. Jody remembers him being a bit cuter. There are other posters as well. More shows from the Dweeb Higgins era. There's one for a variety show called Gem Gladstone and the Rock Steadies. These were humans, real humans, caked in metallic face paint and dressed in rhinestone outfits that would sparkle like disco balls when the studio spotlights caught them just right. There's one for a costume character show called Mary Bighead and Co. As the name implies, the show was led by a top-heavy mascot, seemingly always ready to topple under the weight of its oversized orange-furred melon as it spastically conducted an audience of children through sing-alongs. There's also a poster for the Wumble Tumbles, a puppet theater show, but marionettes instead of hand puppets like Dweeb. Their talented string pullers always manage to get impressive movements from their stiff little limbs. After scanning the posters, Jody catches the eye of another woman who's also been waiting patiently in the lobby. The woman smiles, and so does Jody. Any other time, the interaction wouldn't have stopped there. Any other time, Jody would have said hello and introduced herself. Jody might occasionally get nervous, but she never gets shy and takes great pride in her chit chat. But there will be no small talk today because Jody already knows why this woman is here. This woman is here for an interview, same as her. Of course, Jody knew there'd be others. There had to be others interested in writing for the reboot of a beloved children's show. But the reality that she might get passed up, that she might be adding another tally to a long list of rejections, actually seeing the physical embodiment of that reality smiling pleasantly at her, well, Jody's sorry if she's not feeling very friendly. Jody hates that she sees it this way. She hates that she's already betraying her very nature in the face of opportunity. But for now, this very pleasant woman will stay a stranger. Jody, they're ready for you. The producer motions for her to follow. They walk down a short hallway lined with more posters and pictures of Dweeb Higgins, a decade's worth of content. With the competition left in the lobby, Jody's back in her comfort zone. Chit chat has been reactivated. Wow, this is just so cool. I've always wanted to work in TV. It's a dream just to have the opportunity. If I'm being honest, I'm a little nervous. This is a pre-planned line, but that doesn't make it any less true. They arrive at double doors. Above the doors is a big sign that reads, Do not enter when red light on. Filming in progress. 
But there is no red light on, just the producer smiling. Once again, that smile gives Jody hope that everything is still on track. That this interview will be the one that finally works out. You'll be fine. The producer promises. It's a lie. She pushes through the door to reveal the studio. All the interview prep in the world couldn't have prepared Jody for seeing it in person. The rush of nostalgia is dizzying, like being awoken in the middle of the night, that brief moment where dream and reality are the most entwined. Just seeing the studio lights, the bleacher seating, the blocky TV cameras, the stage... The stage consists of a backdrop with the Life Lessons with Dweeb Higgins logo. Rainbows, stars, so much color. Everything even more vibrant than in her childhood memories. In front of the backdrop is a chest-high counter where Dweeb's puppeteers would hide. And beyond the stage are various props and set pieces ready to be rolled into place at a moment's notice. Jody thinks, if only briefly, that if this is as far as she gets, maybe that's enough. But no, that's not what she planned. That's not what she rehearsed. She is going all the way. She does wonder, however... The studio is empty. Not a soul. There's just a lone folding chair set in front of Dweeb's counter. The producer gestures toward it. Have a seat. Jody sits in the chair for minutes that feel like many more. As that warm sense of nostalgia is slowly infected with the cool touch of nerves. Finally, she hears the voice coming from behind the counter. It's instantly familiar, high-pitched yet quiet, like a frightened child's. It's Dweeb Higgins. I'm sorry, I'm a bit shy. But maybe if we get to know each other a little better... Jody immediately understands the game. She may have expected an unorthodox interview. It is for a children's show, after all. But having it with Dweeb himself, well, she couldn't have planned on that. But she does not see this as a setback. In fact, while others might find it strange, Jody finds it delightful. I'd like that a lot. She leans forward. That's when the hands creep over the lip of the counter. White gloved hands. Then the head rises. First is the hair, even more tangled after decades of storage. Then his big plastic eyes. They can't blink, but they can move side to side, making him look a bit more paranoid than engaged. 
Okay. My name is Dweeb Higgins. Hello, Dweeb Higgins. My name is Jody. Dweeb reveals the rest of his stiff, rubbery face. His mouth flaps as he speaks. It's easy for Jody to smile at the thought of two puppeteers smushed uncomfortably together behind the counter, one working the mouth, the other the hands. It's a funny image, and she looks forward to meeting them. What kind of people can bring Dweeb to life so flawlessly? What stories they must have. Dweeb extends a hand, and Jody shakes it. It's a soft grip, someone skilled at shaking the fragile mitts of children. Dweeb's still quite shy, still ready to dive back behind the counter at any moment. Oh, hiya there, Jody. It's very nice to meet you. Do you mean it? I sure do. And she sure does. She leans in further and whispers, trying to be friendly, trying to be reassuring. When I was a little girl, I was a real big fan of yours. Oh, so you know me. Sure, at least I feel like I do. Well, that's not fair. I don't know you at all. No, I guess you don't. But we can change that, can't we? Hmm. Dweeb pauses and rubs his chin with a gloved hand, the international sign for thinking, before excitedly concluding, We sure can! Dweeb stands up straighter, more confident, more comfortable. He rises higher above the counter, now looking down at Jody in her small folding chair. Can I ask you a few questions, Jody? Of course. What is your favorite animal? Jody thinks it's a dog. She loves dogs, but that's too obvious. A dog would be a normal answer. But this is not a normal interview. How about a pig? A pig! Yes, a pig! Oink, oink, oink! Dweeb points to Jody. It's her turn. Jody hasn't oinked in decades, but she gives it a try. Oink, oink, oink. Dweeb roars with laughter. It takes Jody by surprise. So much louder, so much deeper than she expected. Dweeb contains himself long enough to ask another question. What's your favorite color? Quick, quick! Blue. Jody instinctively responds and immediately regrets. Blue is so pedestrian. Should have said Skobaloff or something. But Dweeb seems to love it. Blue! A blue pig! How strange! A blue pig! What 
would you do if you saw a blue pig? Well, I guess I'd wonder who painted it. <laughs> <laughs> it gets a chuckle from Dweeb, and she's thankful that it wasn't another belly laugh. You did! You painted it! Okay, I painted a pig blue. Why? Why did you paint a pig blue? Jody's ability to roll with the punches is right up there with her ability to chit-chat. She's game. She loves games. That's why she's here, after all. To play. Because I thought it was cute. You thought it was cute? I did. Do you think the pig thought it was cute? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe. Do you think the pig wanted to be painted blue? I... Do you think it hurt the pig? Um... The first um. The first misstep. The first filler word and the first step toward the absolute breakdown of weeks' worth of carefully rehearsed Q&A sessions. All to try and reconcile the reasoning behind painted pork. Dweeb asks again, a bit impatient. Jody, do you think the pig was hurt when you painted it blue? It's likely been happening since the outburst of laughter but Jody finally registers the steady change in Dweeb's voice. It's dropped a little lower. An adult's voice beginning to bleed through, like helium wearing off. She also realizes just how far back she's sitting in her chair, and just how much closer Dweeb has leaned in. She's flustered. The one thing she swore she wouldn't be, the death knell of any interview... But fine, it happened, and now that she can admit it, she can fix it. She's not out of the game yet. She sits up straighter and leans forward herself. I guess it probably didn't love it. No, I guess it probably didn't. So it's okay to hurt something as long as it makes it cuter, right? That's not what I said. As long as it makes you smile and makes others smile, it'd be okay to hurt something. Or someone. If only just a little. Absolutely not. And just like that, Dweeb perks back up, his voice as high and shrill as ever. Oh, good. I feel like I'm really getting to know you, Jody. I'm glad. Dweeb takes on a more casual posture, folding his arms across the counter and putting him back to eye level with Jody. Do you like children, Jody? I do. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Me either. Do you want to keep children safe, Jody? Of course. What kind of question is that? Dweeb leans forward again. 
let's say that you see a child, a little girl, all alone in the park. The child looks very scared. There's a pause. Dweeb stares blankly at Jody, unmoving. It breaks the illusion for a moment, reminding Jody that, of course, this is just a puppet. This was always just a puppet. She feels a bit silly that she needed to remind herself of this and speaks just to break the silence. Okay. How do you know she's scared? Well, maybe she's crying and looks lost. So? What do you do? While unrehearsed, Jody's answer comes as easily, maybe more so, as any other. Because she's been that little girl lost and alone in the park. At six years old, she'd chased a duck. A plump, waddling little fella straight out of a Saturday morning cartoon. She didn't catch it. She didn't even come close, but not for lack of trying. She'd pursued it halfway around a lake before the animal remembered its power of flight and took off. By that point, Jody had put enough distance between herself and her mother that the ducks would be the only ones to hear her cries. In that moment, the park never felt bigger. The separation never greater. The threats of a fading sun never more dangerous. All she wanted was for someone, for anyone, to help. And that's her answer. I talk to her, see if I can help her find her parents or her guardian. Why should the child trust you, Jody? Sorry, I don't quite understand. Why should the child trust you, Jody? Well, I'd be very friendly, and I'd be very reassuring. Because you are very friendly and very reassuring. I am. Dweeb's voice had dropped lower again, almost a hiss, and Jody notices. But there's something else that is much more alarming. The smell. There's a distinct hot smell of sweat emanating from the puppet. Body odor but thick as fog. The image that had tickled her before, the pair of puppeteers smushed together behind the counter, now feels grotesque. She imagines them intertwined, sweating, skin blotchy and red, unwashed areas slippery and grinding together to create the soupy odor. Jody swallows and can taste the smell all the way down her throat. Do you think that someone who wants to hurt a child, someone who wants to do bad things to a child, could be very friendly and very reassuring? I, uh... Could they pretend to be very friendly and very reassuring? As far as Jody's concerned, this interview is over. She doesn't want to be in the presence of this puppet for a moment longer, let alone for eight hours a day. 
but she worked very, very hard and spent long hours prepping for this interview. She missed nights out with friends, missed out on some of that beloved chit-chat, all so that she could be sitting here right now. So, no, she doesn't want the job anymore, but she sure as hell wants to be offered the job, just so that she can turn it down. Sure. Jody, when you were a little bitty girl, were you taught to never, ever, ever trust strangers? Everyone should be taught to never trust strangers. Yes, I was taught that. But here you are, hoping that this little girl wasn't taught that at all. Jody thinks she sees Dweeb blink, which is impossible. Likely her own rising anger playing tricks on her. Do you think a child should trust you? Trust a stranger? Just because you're very friendly? No. Just because you're very reassuring? No. Do you think that a child should ignore one of the most important lessons that they'll ever, ever, ever learn just because of you? Jody wants him to shut up. Needs him to shut up. Her hand begins to instinctively lash out, ready to pinch this asshole puppet's mouth shut. But she catches herself and is glad to have controlled the impulse. She doesn't want to touch that skin to feel the paint crack and flake from his face, to get that stench of latex, of rancid sweat on her fingertips. Is that what you want to teach them? Dweeb is getting loud, more and more accusatory. Stop. His voice rises. Is it? Hers does as well. Stop. Is it, Jody? Dweeb leans further over the counter, stretching toward Jody, his face so close to hers. Now Jody has an even more terrible realization. That smell, that ungodly smell, is coming from the puppet's mouth, pushed out like hot breath with each accusation. Because if we've learned one thing, Jody, pigs sure aren't safe around you. Why would a child be? Jody stands. She slams the countertop with closed fists, sending an electric shock of pain from palm to elbow. But it's worth it just to see Dweeb cower, retracting like a scared child. Fine! I just leave her to sit in the dark, dangerous park all by herself crying her eyes out. Is that better? <sighs> Dweeb gasps, dramatically covering his mouth with gloved hands. You monster! Jody pushes away from the counter. <coughs> the pleasure of getting the job, the pleasure of getting the job and then turning down the job. None of it compares to the pleasure of the next three words. Fuck you, Dweeb! Jody storms toward the double doors, already looking forward to sharing those same three words with the producer. She might even rip down a poster or two on her way out. 
She's smiling at the thought when she yanks the door handles and realizes they're locked. There's a brief moment where she thinks this might be her fault, a push instead of pull situation. But no, they're locked. And the voice from behind lets her know why. You can't go. Who would we be if we let someone who wants to hurt children just leave? She turns back to the stage. But Dweeb is gone. And that's worse. The grand studio that had recently flooded her with the happiest of childhood memories now feels treacherous. Like a darkening place full of lengthening shadows. Murky places where anything could hide. But beyond these shadows, against the far wall, is a glimmer of hope. Another door. Another exit. She takes a few steps that direction when Dweeb peers out from around another corner. A cubby where extra stage lights are stored. You're not friendly at all! He ducks back out of sight. Jody watches that corner carefully as she continues, putting enough space between her and it to feel like Dweeb could never stretch his puppety arms out far enough to grab her. Of course, all bets are off at this point, aren't they? Maybe his puppet arms could stretch across the entire studio. Maybe they could wrap around her ankle like a prehensile tail and drag her into that pitch-black cubby. Jody reminds herself that she would do well to stop being concerned with Dweeb himself. Whoever is controlling Dweeb could just as easily toss the little bastard to the ground and run her down. The thought of those puppeteers, their clothes soggy with sweat, that stench seeping through their pores like sewage through a molding sponge, the idea of them getting their hands on her, pulling her tight against their slippery bodies. Well, she's not ready to think much more about that right now. But the fact that they haven't revealed themselves yet means they have much more in store than just catching her. They want her scared. Well, congratulations. You're dangerous. The voice comes from behind her. She turns to see Dweeb in the last row of bleachers, an impossible feat. Not impossible just because a moment ago he was on the other side of the studio. There could always be more than one puppet, right? No, this is impossible because there's simply not enough room for a puppeteer, let alone two, to hide behind that thin strip of aluminum seating. Jody recognizes this impossibility, but her brain also recognizes that recognizing this impossibility will likely put her on the road to pure, uncut, uncensored madness. Dweeb's face doesn't help. It's more animated. The stiff rubber now capable of greater contortion. Now expressing something he couldn't before. Anger. You're a dangerous stranger. Jody's feet catch up to her fear, and she bolts. As she passes the counter, the one with the stars and the rainbows and the good memories now forever marred, Dweeb lunges out. 
Gloved hands paw at her shirt and waist. She flails, desperate to break away. But those digging, groping hands won't let her. So instead, she seizes Dweeb by the neck and squeezes. There's little resistance. Dweeb was never made of the most durable materials. Cheap foam and latex squish through Jody's fingers, and she knows if she pulls, it wouldn't take much to rip the head clean off. Dweeb coughs and he gags. He pleads for life. In all this insanity, this strikes Jody as the most absurd. This goddamn thing's going to keep up the act to the very end. So Jody yanks, hoping to tear his head from his neck and hoping that he somehow feels it. But when she does, his whole body goes sprawling from behind the counter and tumbles to the ground. In an instant, he's lifeless, a deflated heap on the floor. He is what he always was, a puppet. Adrenaline pumping and primed for more violence, Jody pushes over Dweeb's counter, ready to confront the stinking bastards, the cowardly men behind the curtain. She wonders if they'll cough and gag and plead when she chokes the life from them, too. She finds nothing. No one behind the counter. No one to chastise. No one to throttle just the lingering stench. It's time to run. And so she does. She crosses the studio and makes it to the far door. In her terrified dash, she hasn't considered that this door might also be locked. And she feels like a fool when she finds that it is. She turns to see Dweeb still lying on the floor. She can only see the top half of him, the other half masked by the backdrop. He's on his stomach, face turned to the side, eyes wide and empty, mouth agape. For Jody, it brings to mind the image of a dead child, perhaps one left in the road after being struck by a car. Life lessons with Dweeb Higgins had taught little Jody all about looking both ways before crossing the street. She shudders at the thought. Then he starts to move, to slide backwards. But it isn't Dweeb returning to life. He isn't moving on his own. Someone unseen, someone on the other side of the backdrop is dragging him from view. Jody very much wishes that he remained looking like a runover child. A morbid thought, but at least she could keep an eye on him. She frantically scans the room for another way out. She doesn't connect it, but the feeling of hopelessness spreading through her like a poison is one that she's felt before. The last time she felt it was at six years old, alone in a sunless park. Terrified of the unknown, unable to wrap her embryonic mind around the incomprehensible idea of abandonment. The feeling washes over her much like the nostalgia before it. But of course, this is different. 
where nostalgia takes you back, offering sensation of old comforts, sweet and sugary. This feeling also returns you to the past, unearthing long-buried dread. The opposite of nostalgia. Trauma. Both then and now she wishes for someone to save her. Both then and now she wants her mother. This time what she gets is Dweeb Higgins. His gloved hands creep around the edge of the backdrop. Then his tangled hair. Then his big, terrible eyes. His once large pupils are now pinpricks. His mouth a sneer. Stranger! 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 Jody came in with the energy to fight for the job, but in this moment, she's not even sure she wants to fight for her life. What if she does and lives? She'll be seeing those pinprick eyes every night forever. She'll wake up hearing that screeching voice. The accusation of stranger will float from every shadow. A fate worse than death. Reruns of this nightmare playing in syndication forever. The door behind Jody opens hard, striking her in the back and pitching her forward. She spins to see the competition, her rival interviewee, last seen in the lobby. The woman that had previously filled Jody with an unbearable sense of resentment is now the most wonderful sight she's ever seen. But this once pleasant woman is frazzled, wide-eyed, absolutely horrified. Hurry. She's already running back through the door. The will to survive has come back. Jody will worry about the nightmares later. For now, she'll live. Jody dashes through the door while the interviewee rushes further down the long hallway. With the glowing ominous red of emergency lights as her only guide, Jody lags behind. This interviewee is fast. Jody thinks that maybe this woman should consider a different career path. Are there professional escapees? If there are, Jody thinks it's a good time to try out for that position as well, and she picks up her pace. She rounds a tight corner into another hall. She's desperately trying to keep up, but she's failing this audition as well. The woman is pulling far ahead of her. Wait! Please! Wait, miss! She trails off, actually feeling guilty in this moment. She never did learn this woman's name, and now she's relying on her to save her life. It's the first thing she's going to ask if they make it out alive, and, boy or girl, she'll have her first child's name lined up and ready to go. Jody steals a look behind her and immediately wishes she hadn't. Dweeb peers from around the last corner, smiling wide and toothless. Even more sinister and grotesque bathed in the red light. Jody nearly stumbles, but her new friend is right there to catch her. Come on, I can get you out of here. Just hurry. She jerks Jody forward and sends her down the hallway first. 
The interviewee stays on her heels to make sure that Jody keeps up the pace. Rounding another corner, Jody spots a door at the end of the hall. Above it, she sees the most glorious thing in the world. A glowing exit sign. Jody's feet feel lighter, hope lifting her up, almost a reason to smile. Again, she might not connect it, but when she was six years old, she had the same feeling when she saw her mother cresting the hill of a vast, ominous park, a distant figure calling her name. In that moment, little Jody knew that everything would be fine, that the nightmare was over. She ran to her mother then as she runs toward the aluminum door now. She's only feet from the crash bar when the interviewee calls out from behind. No, 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 it's locked. Trust me. Of course it is. Everything else is locked. Why wouldn't the one way out be as well? But they aren't completely out of luck just yet. The interviewee stands by another side door already propping it open. She waves wildly for Jody to get inside, like a third base coach trying to get a runner to make it all the way home. The last chance. The winning score. Jody rushes through the door and immediately skids to a stop when she gets inside. It's dark. A disorienting void. The room could be the size of a janitor's closet, or it could be the size of a soccer field. She gets one glance back at the interviewee before the woman slams the door shut. Jody hurries to it, but already knows that it's been locked. The very last of a series of locked doors today. She could fumble around in the dark looking for an exit. She could play an involuntary game of blind man's bluff. Maybe she could find a way out. But something else finds her first. As Jody's eyes adjust to the darkness, figures emerge from the black. At first, they're unrecognizable. Just odd-shaped and disproportioned blobs of shadow. But as they approach, they become much clearer. There's Jem Gladstone and the Rock Steadies. The rhinestones on their outfits that would normally shimmer in the light look like glassy, blind eyes here in the dark. There's Mary Bighead and Co. Their giant noggins sway side to side with each step. Their shaggy fur matted and stained like long-abused carpet. There's the Wumble Tumbles, moving stiffly across the floor... Strings rise from their limbs and disappear into the darkness above them, controlled by unseen puppeteers. Just how far up does that ceiling go? The collection of costumed creatures, Jody's childhood memories, all shamble toward her. The smell comes with them, thick and pungent, rolling in like a nauseating breeze. The stink is inescapable, but Jody recognizes with horror that so is the entire situation. Each figure holds their own weapon of choice. All are colorful, adorned with stickers and ribbons, adorable in their own ways. They're cheap, 
handmade with leftover costume parts, broken puppet arms, felt-covered wood. A few are sharpened and may be capable of slicing or at least poking, but most are just blunt objects. It would take quite a while for someone to be beat to death with this imaginative assortment. But these creatures aren't yet slated for reboot. They have plenty of time. Through the hallway door, the interviewee can hear Jody scream and scream and scream. This mystery woman will become known as Constance Quince. Miss Q, co-host of Life Lessons with Dweeb Higgins, and almost as beloved by children as the puppet himself. She would have told Jody this had she asked, and then maybe they wouldn't have been strangers. Maybe they could have even been friends. She takes a moment to listen to the screams. They're occasionally cut short, and Miss Q imagines it's probably because one of her new pals landed a solid blow to Jody's face. Then Miss Q turns and waves an enthusiastic goodbye to a hidden camera, one of the many placed throughout the entire studio. She skips her way down the hall. There's a pep in her step and a song in her heart. She whistles the rest of the theme song as she pushes through the unlocked exit door and out into the most gorgeous, sunshiny day. Dweeb would call it a be-you-until-full day. When this particular episode of the newly reimagined Life Lessons with Dweeb Higgins airs, Jody might have been glad to hear that children across the country will be rooting for her. Many would have even cheered had she run through the exit door instead of trusting a person whose name she didn't know. But her mistake and subsequent violent death won't be completely pointless. At the end of the show, Dweeb will ask all the children watching. So what did we learn, kids? And they'll shout back, Never, ever, ever trust strangers. It's a lesson that will last them a lifetime. Ultimately, networks will once again find the show profitable. Parents will once again find it educational. Kids will once again find it entertaining. Because while things have changed since it first aired, Dweeb is here to meet the demands of the modern child. And fortunately, there are plenty of episodes left.
It's well known that nobody who works on or listens to the No Sleep Podcast ever sleeps. But it may shock you to learn that there are some people who don't listen, and thus some people who do sleep. And out of those people, some of them sleep extremely deeply indeed. Almost nothing can wake them up. But in this tale, shared with us by author Gemma Amour, we meet a woman whose normally sound sleep is inexplicably disturbed. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson and Penny Scott Andrews. So don't worry about sleeping through your alarms. There will surely be someone on hand to say, Wakey, wakey. I am awake. I should not be awake. It's 3.35am according to the digital display on my alarm clock. 3.35am and I am suddenly, totally, completely wide awake. What the fuck is going on? I never wake up. There was an earthquake six months back that knocked all the books off my shelves and I didn't wake up even then. I sleep heavily. Always have done. I work hard and I'm tired most of the time. I like to sleep. Sleep is my friend. It comes for me like clockwork every night at 11pm and keeps me busy until 7am every day, every week, every year without fail. So why am I awake? Do I need to go to the bathroom? I think about it for a second. Nope, that's not it. Did the cat come in? I tentatively stretch out a hand, feel the bed for Ripley's familiar weight and warmth. But there is nothing. Besides, Ripley snuggles up to me all the time in the night, and it's never woken me up before. Did something fall over in the apartment? A picture off the wall? A book off the shelf? Did Ripley knock something over while prowling around like an arsehole? Again, it's never been a problem until now, but maybe that's it. Ripley being a dick. I listen, but hear nothing. Only a very loud silence. The kind of thick, disconcerting silence that almost sounds like static feedback. The kind of silence that makes you very aware that you live alone. My anxiety creeps up. Just a little. I continue to question my sudden wakefulness. Did an ambulance go by? Or maybe there was a fight outside in the street. A big one. Some drunken idiots coming back from a bar, perhaps, and making noise. My window is shut and I shouldn't be able to hear much noise at all from the street. But I have to eliminate all possibilities. And this is one. Again, I listen, straining. But all is quiet. All is still. Nothing. Nothing is wrong. Everything is apparently as it should be. And yet, my heart rate climbs. Relax, I tell myself. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing to be worried about. Nothing to be afraid of. You're an adult. You know this. You just woke up is all. Maybe you had a bad dream or snored so loudly you woke yourself up. You do snore, you know. And grind your teeth. I feel my jaw, poking it with fingers to see if there is any tenderness. All feels fine. No soreness. No teeth grinding, not tonight. None of the telltale dryness in my throat that indicated I'd been snoring either. Hmm. So what? Does it matter? I ask myself. Who cares why you're awake? Just get the fuck back to sleep pronto. Relax. You've got a long day tomorrow. You need your shut-eye. I let out an exasperated sigh and roll over, 
trying to forcibly will myself back to sleep. As I do so, I feel a low, dull pain in my left big toe, like pins and needles, only deeper somehow, worse. It hurts. I let out a little hiss of pain, wincing. I must have slept on it, maybe trapped it under the covers and cut off the circulation in my sleep. But no, that can't be right. The covers aren't over my feet. I can't stand my feet being trapped under sheets, so I sleep with them poking out the end of the bed. An ex-boyfriend of mine once told me that I was a psycho for sleeping like that, but what can I say? I like having cold feet. I like feeling free instead of pinned down. I hiss again and rub my other foot against the numb toe, trying to get some circulation back, my anxiety now turning to frustration. I am tired. I have to get up for work in a few hours. I need my goddamn sleep. Ugh. My foot slides too easily over my numb toe, which feels... wet. Wet? Why the fuck is it wet? Why the fuck am I awake? I sit up, now hyper-aware of every single tiny thing around me. Every move I make in the bed amplifies the pain in my toe, as if the damn thing is coming back to life somehow. Like a toothache after an anaesthetic has worn off. It is dark in my room. Pitch dark. I can't sleep if there is any light, so I have blackout blinds and dark, muted colours on my walls. The darkness makes the silence seem heavier somehow. A growing sensation of wrongness starts to play with my senses. My mouth is suddenly dry, and my hands cold, clammy. I can feel my heartbeat thundering along like a train, and goosebumps slowly start to work their way up my arms and legs like a rash. I try and map out the space around me using only my ears, but the overwhelming silence in my apartment gets louder, thicker, more oppressive. My stomach starts to churn, my toe throbs, and the pain travels up my foot to my ankles. I make a small, hurt, scared noise in the back of my throat. The noise gets swallowed by the dark. Fuck this! What the fuck is wrong with my foot? I reach over to flick the switch on my bedside lamp. My fingers get to within an inch of the switch when I hear it. The noise. At the end of my bed. I freeze. Something is in the room with me. Fuck. Fuck. My heart is pounding so loudly now I can hardly hear anything else. Just the relentless surge of my own blood pulsing in my ears. The noise comes again. A faint rustle. A tiny movement. The sound of a floorboard shifting ever so slightly under a weight. Ripley? There is no reply. Ripley always replies when I call his name, with a yowl or a little mew. Something that acknowledges his presence. If he doesn't reply, it's because he is elsewhere. Or asleep, maybe. Like I should be. Ripley? And the noise comes again. A slight shift. A definite movement. Then, as my heart seems to shrivel up in my chest altogether... Another noise. A distinct, recognisable noise. A long, drawn-out sigh. Cold, absolute fear washes over me, flooding my system. The noise was unmistakable. It was a human sigh. Not a noise an animal can make. Not the sound of something falling over or rustling or anything an inanimate object could sound like. It was a sigh. From another person's mouth. Fuck. Someone is in my room. Fuck. Someone is in my fucking room. I don't know what to do. What do I fucking do? My cell phone is in the next room. I keep it there so the notification lights don't interfere with me going to sleep. I don't have another phone. No bedside phone, nothing. Only my cell. 
which now feels like it's a million miles away. Fuck, think, what do I do? This is something I've had nightmares about my whole entire life. And now I'm here, I don't know how to react. Should I turn on the light? Do I want to see who it is? Or should I try and make a run for it, under the cover of darkness? If I do that, I might trip and fall. Whoever is hiding at the end of my bed might get me. But if I stay here, lying in bed in the dark, then I'm an easy target. How did they get in? I live four floors up, and the window is always closed, my door double-bolted with a chain. How is there someone in my room? How? And what the fuck do I do about it? My arm is still outstretched, frozen in the act of flicking the lamp switch. With a sudden jolt, I remember that I have a heavy pair of marble bookends on the bedside table, propping up my reading pile. I move my hand carefully, trying not to brush up against anything, trying not to knock over a glass of water I know is sitting on the table too, giving myself away. The pain in my toe intensifies, and I bite my lip to stop myself from calling out. Adrenaline has made it more bearable, and as priorities go, it isn't high on the list, but I wish I knew what was wrong with my foot because it hurts like fuck. My hand closes over one of the bookends, and I pick it up carefully, extricating it out from behind the lamp and over the alarm clock and the glass of water without knocking into anything. Then, I silently transfer the heavy bookend from my left hand to my right. My left hand goes back to the light switch. There is another shuffle at the end of my bed. I feel as if I'm about to die from fright. My tongue feels enormous, too big for my mouth. I'm cold, suddenly horribly cold, and sweat pours down my sides from my armpits. I can smell myself then, smell my own acrid, sour stink. I grip the bookend hard with my right hand, and my trembling left hand caresses the lamp switch. Do it, I tell myself. Just do it. I count to five silently. Then, I flick on the light. I look down at the end of my bed. The first thing I see is my foot, poking out the end of the covers. It is bright red, and blood is running down it, staining my bedding. The second thing I see is a woman. She is naked, and she is chewing on my big toe. My blood is smeared dark and red all over her face. She has short, scrubby white hair and long, brown, blunt teeth. Her skin is sallow and pale. She has one hand between her legs, and the other rests on the end of the bed, holding something. There is a lanyard around her neck, from which hangs a swipe card and a key. I know without looking in too much detail that the swipe card is for entry into the building, and the key is a replica of my front door key. Because how the fuck else has she gotten into my apartment? There is a syringe in her hand. An empty syringe. She has injected me with something. She is also eating my toe. I gaze at my foot in horror. A long, low howl of disgust and fear rips out of my mouth. The flesh on the end of my big toe is missing. I can see bone. The woman grins, catching my eye. She stops chewing and sticks out her tongue. On the end of her tongue, balanced on the tip like a breath mint, is my big toenail. She has ripped it off with her teeth and is now savouring it like a piece of rump steak. I can't move. I can't think. All I can do is stare at the woman as she rolls the toenail around on her tongue, pulls it back into her mouth and swallows. Then she sighs in pleasure, opens her mouth and says in a strange, happy, sing-song voice, Wakey-wakey! I scream.
sometimes life can really drag you down. It can feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Every movement you make seems to take all the effort you can muster. And in this tale, shared with us by author C.M. Scandrath, we meet a woman who, despite undergoing no visible changes whatsoever, feels like she's becoming more and more leaden. Performing this tale are Ilana Charnel and Jake Benson. So it's understandable if you're starting to flag. It's hard to keep a spring in your step when you're so heavy. Funny how much of our lives are made up of things we take completely for granted. Sitting in a chair, getting in a car, holding a pencil. All these things we never even think about for a second. But when you do, there's so much about being a person we're completely oblivious to. Basically, reflex actions. Nearly autonomic, like breathing. I probably can't explain why I've come to think about them constantly without telling you the whole story. So I guess I should try to find a beginning to this mess. A place where I think it began. Considering the eventual outcome of my situation is going to affect... Well, everything. I owe you all that much. I've never been overly concerned about my weight... Being a poor artist has certain challenges you can reframe as underappreciated perks in that regard, like staying trim by skipping meals to afford rent or pretending you have a unique style because you wear your clothes until they're threadbare. But there's been genuine perks too. I also got to be my own boss, to constantly do what I loved most in the world and to hang out with people as creatively driven as myself. I've never owned a set of human-sized scales, only the baking scales that I used for measuring paints and resins. If I had to guess, I'd say I've been a slightly wayfish 55 kilograms for most of my adult life, probably underweight for my height. But I was generally healthy, so it never bothered me that much. Sometimes folks would say, eat a burger or you need some pies, but I don't think anyone ever thought I was anorexic. I had enough energy to do my job and get through the day, so it wasn't a problem. I have a theory that what changed all that came from the art supplies I ordered from Poland, but I can't be certain. It's possible it was just bound to happen to me through some quirk of physics. Maybe some quantum string of particles passed through me at random. A one in one trillion 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 chance event that somehow altered my atomic structure. I genuinely hope it was the art supplies, because then perhaps at the end I won't be as alone as I feel. I might not be the only one. But enough speculation, I know you want to get to weightier matters, if you'll excuse the pun. I promise there won't be any more, because it stopped being funny a long time ago now. The floorboard near the bathroom sink was the first clue. It had always creaked a little when I stood on it, but on that particular morning, it creaked really loud. I figured it was nothing, just my shitty little apartment starting to feel its age, so I ignored it. I 
few days later it was the bus seat. I often caught the same bus, which in this small town meant the same vehicle every day. As I sat down in my favourite seat, it squeaked alarmingly. That metal-on-metal sound that sets your teeth on edge. But again, it's one of those things you just attribute to wear and tear. How many hundreds of people sat on this particular seat in a week? How many juddering rides did it take to weaken metal screws and bolts stressed by the load of some human colossus with a gym bag in his lap? At this point, I'm now fairly sure that I already weighed about twice what I should have. There just wasn't any way I could have picked up on it then, because it's not like I was adding any volume to my person. I still fit the same ripped skinny jeans. I could still wear all my T-shirts designed for kids, picked mostly because they're cheaper. What I'm trying to say here is that until a normal-sized human being starts to become a truly abnormal weight, until you hit the, ironically, skinny bit at the far right of the bell curve, there's not really any way of telling that something's gone very wrong. When the chair at my workbench broke, I was so confused. It was a sturdy wooden stool, but one of the bracing struts between the legs had splintered, which in turn caused a back leg to snap. There were no holes in the wood, no saw marks or knots. It had been a completely solid chair leg just the previous day. It was hard to pick myself up off the floor and I realised I was really tired. My back hurt too, and it had before the fall. My bed had seemed horribly uncomfortable over the last couple of days, like my mattress wasn't supporting me properly anymore. My shoes also seemed to be wearing thin. I could feel every nuance of the pavement through my feet every stone, every bump. I thought maybe I was getting sick, that these were the muscle aches signalling a virus. But for the rest of the day, I noticed everything I walked on made stressed sounds. The floorboards of my bathroom, the boards on the deck of my favourite coffee place, the wooden stairs up to the studio. And when I ventured out to the park that evening, I couldn't help but notice the deep footprints I left. Not just the yellowing grass smashed flat, a dent in the shape of my shoe in the earth. And it hadn't rained for days. It was then that I decided to buy some scales. First reading was 234 kilograms. That's almost the same weight as the wrestler, Andre the Giant. I checked. I checked the scales too, of course. I had leader containers of paint that I knew would weigh one kilogram when filled with water. There was no question about it after I tested it the third time. The scales were accurate. What I was going to do with this information was a whole different kettle of fish. Of course, I didn't want to believe it. Who would? How the hell did a woman who could still fit into children's clothes end up weighing as much as the biggest wrestler in history? And and how did that happen almost overnight? I weighed myself obsessively from that point onward, noting my weight gain during the day but I knew the scales maxed out at 250 kilograms, so when I hit that limit, I didn't know how to track the anomaly any further. What I did know was disturbing. I had gained 10 kilograms in less than 12 hours. Something was desperately wrong with me. On the walk to the doctor's office, my shoes gave out. The soles just sort of split and yawned into cracks, like they were in one of those hydraulic press videos. They hurt, so I threw them into the first rubbish bin I found, then walked the rest of the way in my socks, 
then barefoot when my socks gave up too. Sometimes I thought I could feel the pavement cracking under my feet. Tiny pings and pops of stressed stone, little pebbles giving up to dust. At the doctor's office, I refused to take a seat. I'd figured out by now that nothing intended to rest a human backside was going to support my weight, and I didn't want to cause a scene by flattening one of their plastic chairs. When the doctor called my name, I followed him into his small office, leaving a trail of footprints in the carpet where my feet compressed the fibres. I noted nobody else did. Take a seat. He gave a quizzical look at my dirty feet. I shook my head, then began explaining what was happening. I could tell he didn't believe me. I don't blame him. It's not something that is believable, that a slender five-foot-three woman could weigh somewhere over a quarter of a tonne. Miss Lord, I have many other patients to see. Please don't waste my time. His tone wasn't altogether unkind, but he was already regarding me with a certain look, the one that precedes a quiet referral to a psychologist. I'm truly not... Here, let me show you. His electronic scales were beside his desk. I tapped them carefully with my foot, then stood on them as the LCD screen came alive. For a moment, numbers flashed like a malfunctioning elevator. Then I saw it register error before the screen went blank. Under my bare feet, the stressed plastic and steel let out a warning creak. I stepped off quickly, grateful the office was on the ground floor and that it felt like there was solid concrete under the carpet. The doctor tapped every button on the scale, then sighed as he mentally called time of death on the machine. It looks like my poor old scales are on the fritz. But look, you are otherwise in perfect health, yes? No respiratory issues, no digestive issues, no loss of appetite? I nodded, but he continued even as my mouth opened to press the point. We'll do a blood panel, just to be sure, but I'm going to refer you to a colleague. She deals with certain kinds of dysmorphic issues. Body image. She sees a lot of young women. But I'm not making this up, I return softly, trying to sound calm and authentic and not at all unhinged. I realise this must seem very real to you. He said, every vowel a study in the art of professionally patronising a person. I left then. Just walked out, feeling the carpet close to shredding with every twist of my heels. They would bill me in full, I was sure, but at that moment it didn't seem to matter. I heard the doctor emerge behind me and say something I didn't hear, and the receptionist raised her head as I passed. Grimly, I thought that if she tried to chase me, I could simply fall on top of her and crush her. The farming equipment supply store had a display model cattle scale. The poster next to it said it could weigh any beast up to 3,000 kilos. I stepped on carefully, making sure nobody in the store was looking, and watched the numbers climb to 833 kilograms, holding my breath as it settled there. While I stared at that ridiculous number, it climbed to 834. And after counting to 10, I watched it tick over to 835. I was literally gaining weight every second. 100 grams per second, to be exact. Leaving the store before they noticed my bare feet, I hurried out the door and ran down the street, 
wondering how long until every step was going to shatter the pavement as I ran. The thing was, I still felt myself as I ran. Small, light, compact. I didn't feel as heavy as a horse. If it weren't for the fact that chairs and even shoes couldn't deal with my weight anymore, I wouldn't have believed it myself. Thought that the business with the scales was some kind of hallucination, that I was deluded. Leaning against the concrete facade of a hotel, I tried to figure out what to do next. I was adding at least six kilograms a minute. That meant in one hour I would gain another 360 kilograms, and I would then weigh over a tonne. Even worse than that, within 24 hours I would weigh nine tonne, roughly equivalent to a medium to large size truck. By this time next week, I would weigh as much as the Space Shuttle Endeavour. Yes, I checked. I walked for maybe two hours. At one point, I called my parents, then broke the connection before they could answer. What would I say to them? Oh, hi, Mum and Dad. Uh, by the way, I'm gaining mass nearly exponentially, and it's not stopping anytime soon. Please come get me. Oh, P.S., bring a horse float and a fucking truck. I was on the outskirts of the city now. If I kept going, I'd hit farmland. And if I kept walking down the long, straight roads, eventually I'd hit foothills and the mountains. On the mountains, I thought I'd be safe. I wouldn't sink into the softer earth like some lead statue in quicksand. The old layers of granite and bedrock would surely hold me, no matter how much I weighed. As I walked, still barefoot, down the highway, cars blared their horns at me, or passengers shouted at me. I was fully that person now. That person who didn't fit any mould, even though she hadn't changed shape. I ignored them. I had a distinct feeling that if I wanted to, I could step onto a car's hood and crush it as I walked across it. Hell, with all this mass concentrated into such a small body, could I even be harmed? Could a knife or bullet even penetrate the molecules of my skin? I'd realised too that I wasn't hungry or thirsty anymore. Hadn't actually eaten for a couple of days. Was I just drawing in mass from the very air itself? It was impossible to tell. And it probably wouldn't make much difference even if I could figure it out. I'm in the mountains. And I have no idea how much I weigh now. I don't think the gain has been steady... I feel like it's been increasing, like my gains are approaching an exponential curve. I can crush stone under my heel without trying, and I can knock over hundred-year-old trees just by gently leaning on them. I've been conserving power on my phone as much as I can, only turning it on to journal these thoughts, to send them out somewhere when things get unsustainable, but that battery percentage is worryingly low. When I walk around the mountain ponds I've found, I create little tides now, my mass pulling at the fluid. I tried to figure out exactly how heavy that makes me, but the theory is beyond me, and I don't want to waste precious phone battery figuring out something that won't help. I'm heading deeper into the mountains now, trying to find the best rock to stay on. Those solid seams of old granite that can support almost any weight. Well, I hope they can support any weight. 
After all, the mountain supports itself, right? At least I have some company now, of a kind. An orbit of small particles. They drag along in my wake, as if I'm a small, mobile moon. I think my own mass is disrupting Earth's gravity. I'm creating my own gravitational field. If I hold a seed up in front of my face and let go, it falls slowly as a dream, curving in towards my body as the conflicting forces twist its path. I'm not sure what happens next, but I think I probably weigh more than the mountain I'm standing on, and I'm not getting any lighter. My feet have started to sink into even the most solid granite. What my weight is, I don't even dare to think about. A goodly percentage of the moon. Something as ridiculous as that. And I'm now certain about that personal gravitational field. Dust orbits me, along with leaves and twigs and other mountain debris. I'm pretty sure there's even a dead chipmunk circling gently. I'm a tiny planetary system of my own existing independent of the Earth. I can feel that it's not going to stop. I know this is not the end, that I'm going to continue growing more and more dense until I conflict with the Earth itself, then eventually our own sun. And when I surpass the mass of the sun, well, by then you'll all be dead wiped out by the massive tsunamis that will roar from the ocean to meet my growing pull. Even your remains will have been crushed by the enormity of my personal gravitational field. But eventually, in a year, maybe even a few months, my mass will be so great that I'll collapse into a singularity, a black hole, and then I'll consume everything in our solar system. You can't stop this by the normal methods. Trust me, I've tried. Nothing can penetrate my skin. I can't asphyxiate myself. I don't even seem to need to breathe anymore. My body sustains itself regardless of my intentions. If I step off a height, the rock where I land pulverizes instantly to soft dust. And I don't even get a bruise. If I could stop this, I would have. Please know that. But if you're reading this and your floor has started to creak, maybe you bought some art supplies from Poland, maybe your chair just broke without warning. Maybe you're like me. Maybe we can find each other. Because I think I'm not the only one. And I think we are meant to be together. But I'm only half of this weird, horrific equation. And when we finally meet, and our impossible event horizons collide, we are going to change the whole fucking universe.
In our final tale, we meet a man whose son is dealing with an extremely specific and extremely bizarre phobia. It's so specific, in fact, that there's no way it developed by chance. It had to come from somewhere. But in this tale, shared with us by author Kevin David Anderson, when David finds out the source of Jacob's fears, he may wish he could flush all traces of the discovery from his mind. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Danielle McRae, Kristen DiMercurio, Wafia White, Dan Zapula, Sarah Thomas, and Atticus Jackson. So let's take a seat and roll with the events that might try to bowl us over. Otherwise, we too may find ourselves suffering from Tualidi Hydrophobia. I had no idea there were so many debilitating phobias. Do you know that there are those that are terrified of right angles, Mexican food, the letter R, the metric system, and even a miserable few that fear Wednesdays, becoming incapacitated every hump day? There's even a phobia of elastic. Can you imagine being afraid of your underwear? Irrational fears are life-altering. And it broke my heart when we found out about my son's. We discovered his while Christmas shopping at the mall. My son had to go to the bathroom, so we started our quest. Why department store bathrooms are located in the farthest place from where you start looking for them? That's a mystery for another time. But we found it. My five-year-old son made a mad dash for the closest stall, and I knew from his pace that we had just made it. I stepped over to the sink. But before I turned the water on, my son screamed. I pushed at the stall door, but it was locked. Jacob? You okay? Daddy? There was terror in his voice. I kicked the door, but it didn't budge. What's wrong? It's trying to eat me. What's trying to eat you? The water. Daddy? Has to be a joke. Do five-year-olds make jokes like this? Can you unlock the door? I can't reach. It won't let me. What won't let you? The water. Help! I put my shoulder into the door, and it popped with a metallic ping, and water splashed all over the floor. My son, tears on both cheeks, stood to the side of the bowl, hands clasping the toilet paper dispenser. He waddled, pants around his ankles into my arms. I held him close. Water soaked through my shirt, transferring from his body to mine. At first, I thought he peed himself, but there was water all over the floor, the toilet... Even the walls. Did you fall in? No, Daddy. It grabbed me. I pushed him from my embrace. I don't understand. What grabbed you? He wiped his nose, getting the tears under control. The water it wanted to eat me. I looked into the toilet. Other than needing a good cleaning, nothing seemed out of sorts. Jacob, water doesn't eat people. I felt its teeth. He turned, pointing at his butt. Right here. I looked at his skin, hoping I'd find nothing, but there, on his left cheek, in a circular six-inch diameter pattern, were tiny red marks. An image from an old animated 80s film, When the Wind Blows, came to mind. A rat in a toilet feeding on feces attacked a character, 
And even though it was a cartoon, <laughs> that image has haunted me. Again, I examined the bowl, this time for rodent hair or whatever, and found nothing. By the time I looked back at my son, the marks were fading. Do you still have to go? He shook his head quickly, eyes wide. And whatever had happened, I decided that he'd been through enough. I wasn't going to let on that I knew he was lying. You know, sometimes after a man pees, he has to go again right away. Think that might happen? He nodded, so I carried him to the nearest urinal. He wasn't tall enough for the important part of his anatomy to reach, so he stood on my feet. Unsure of how this new peeing arrangement was to work, he pondered for a few beats before letting things flow. It was about this time that my wife, Gail, poked her head in. What's taking so long? Oh, we're fine, I said over my shoulder. I had a situation. Is it going to take long? Um, a minute. Why don't you head over to gift wrapping and uh, we'll meet you. Fine. Oh, and I ate your cookie. God damn it. The only reason I come to this mall is to get a cookie. That's a penny for the swear jar, Dad. <laughs> okay, I'll take care of it later. My marriage was shit. There are only two times in life a woman will eat a man's cookie without his permission. One when they just start dating and she knows that he's more interested in getting into her cookies rather than eating one. And a second when a woman doesn't give a rat's ass about the consequences because the marriage has gone to complete and utter shit. I cleaned Jacob up. No small chore thanks to the Save the Planet hand-drying machines. You know, if environmentalists spend less time saving us from ourselves and more time cleaning up after kids, <laughs> we'd still have paper towels in public restrooms. While Jacob was picking out wrapping paper for our presents, Gail asked me what had happened. I recapped it as best I could, even offered my rodent explanation. Hearing myself tell the story, I realized how strange it sounded. Ridiculous, even surreal. But my wife didn't react as I'd expected. Normally, she would have taken the opportunity to point out how inattentive I was at a father or, or lambasted me for not watching the situation closer like any good parent. But it didn't come. She just had a pensive look. What are you thinking? Not sure. He really said that the water tried to eat him? I nodded. Without another word, she turned away and joined Jacob. It was a quiet ride home. We arranged the presents for friends and relatives under the tree... My wife heated dinner, we played a board game, and that was it. We didn't talk about it for weeks. Not until we had to. It was a Wednesday when Gail called me at my office. I work in internet security as a consultant, and I was in a meeting telling a medical company how they were hacked and what I was going to do to ensure that it wouldn't happen as easily next time. And rest assured, there's always a next time when my assistant interrupted. It's your wife. Jacob's in the hospital. I excused myself and picked up the line in the waiting area. Gail? Where the fuck have you been? In a meeting. What happened? Jacob collapsed at school in horrible pain. Jesus. The ER doctor says his kidneys are backed up and his colon is impacted. What? How? David, he hasn't gone to the bathroom in almost three weeks. Not since that day at the mall. Well, that's ridiculous. How is that... David, just get down here. They're going to put a catheter in him. I left the office in a daze, and I don't remember driving to the hospital. I sincerely hope I didn't hit anybody. The next thing I knew, 
I was at my boy's side as he howled in pain. You ever watch your child being fitted with a catheter? I don't recommend it. They flushed his kidneys and ran tests to check for long-term damage. The toxicity levels in his young body were alarmingly high, but thankfully hadn't become lethal. How could a child, a five-year-old, keep from going to the bathroom for weeks? I said to the attending physician, Dr. Adams. But even as the words left my lips, I knew it was the wrong question. How the hell could we, his parents, not know he wasn't going to the bathroom? I could tell by the doctor's hesitant response that he'd like to know that as well. Instead of asking the question, he said, There's no physical reason why Jacob can't go to the bathroom. Everything's in working order. Any lingering discomfort he may experience will dissipate in a few days with the antibiotics I've prescribed. There is nothing physically wrong with your son. Okay, so that leaves us where? I can only conclude that your son's problem is physiological. I recommend he see a child psychologist. Jesus. I ran my fingers through my hair. Adams retrieved a card from his pocket. Here's the number of a wonderful therapist. She's helped lots of children. I didn't take the card. I didn't want to. I didn't want Jacob to need me to take the card. I wanted things back the way they were. I was in a loveless marriage, stuck in a lackluster job, but I was a proud parent of a great kid, and that was really all I needed. I could live with that. But not this. My son's not crazy. Nobody is saying that, but he needs help. We're his parents. We'll help him. Adams closed his eyes for a few beats, as if this wasn't the first conversation he'd had with a father in denial. He returned the card to his pocket. We're admitting Jacob for overnight observations. Barring any unexpected test results, he can go home tomorrow. An hour later, Jacob was moved upstairs to a room where exhaustion set in and he fell fast asleep. Gail and I watched him for almost an hour without saying anything. We just sat, watched him breathe. After it seemed we were both convinced that he'd continue breathing even if we looked away, we finally spoke. How did we miss this? Miss what? How did we miss that he wasn't going to the bathroom? By we, you mean me, right? No. Gail, I really want to know. Did he give you a reason why he wasn't using the bathroom? Gail closed her eyes. Said he was afraid. Of the bathroom? The toilet water. He thinks it wants to eat him. <sighs> the water. Crap. This goes back to what happened at the damn mall. What happened that day, David? I told you everything, even my rodent theory. He wasn't bitten. I checked when we got home. The marks you described were gone or were never there. He said he feared the water? The water, Gail? Gail nodded and then must have seen something on my face as the wheels in my head began to take me back. This has nothing to do with that. No, no, of course not. I said more to avoid a fight rather than to stop my thought process. I just think it's interesting that he said water. When we started dating, and I use the word dating loosely, as it was more of a string of uninspired hookups, I learned about Gail's gift. There was a group of us out one night discussing useless talents, my roommate demonstrated his ability to turn his eyelids inside out without touching them, and Gail's sorority girlfriend could clip her toenails into a shot glass, which she unfortunately demonstrated. I did my impression of a tap-dancing mouse with a full musical score, but Gail's talent 
was the topper of the evening. We sat mesmerized as she twirled her index finger over a glass of water. Without coming in physical contact with the glass or the liquid inside, the water moved. It spun, mimicking the motion of her finger, swirling around like in a toilet bowl. If she changed direction, the water too changed. During our six-month relationship, before she got pregnant, I'd seen her do a few other things inadvertently. Once at the beach, I swear to God, she took control of a wave that was about to hit her. At least a foot over her head and only seconds from crashing into her, Gail held up her hands defensively and the wave split down the middle, dissipating to either side of her. A few weeks later, a speeding car drove through a huge puddle, sending a shower of dirty water our way. We both saw it coming, but I was the only one who got soaked. And there are other examples. But what we realized was that this talent or or gift or call it what you will, was one that she could only summon when slightly intoxicated. She had to be drinking in order for it to work, not stoned. (laughs) We know because we tried them all. It had to be alcohol. We were always inebriated when together, but when she got pregnant, she stopped drinking and so did I. It's amazing how sobering a pregnancy test could be took some doing because, as we were about to find out, we're alcoholics, or at least heading down that road. Jacob changed our lives, and we found sobriety. And with sobriety came a fresh look at one another, resulting in more than just the loss of her unique talent. I can't believe you're bringing that up. It's been fucking years. How dare you? God damn it, Gil. I am not accusing you. Shit. I just want to know why this happened. And I don't? I'm his mother. Why are you so fucking defensive? I'm not... But everything is not my goddamn fault. I... You're right. Let's just focus on Jacob. He needs us. Why don't you go home? Get some rest. I'll stay with him tonight. Gail nodded. Think they'll let you spend the night? (laughs) They'll have a hard time stopping me. Gail picked up her purse, kissed Jacob then moved over to me, hesitated, and gave me an obligatory hug. I squeezed her shoulders and wondered how long we could keep this up. When the sounds of her footfall had faded down the hall, a groggy voice spoke from behind me. Hey, Daddy. I lost track. I turned to find Jacob's eyes open. Lost track? I lost track, but I think you owe about ten dollars to the swear jar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're probably right, son. I'll take care of it when we get home. Jacob sat up. Are you and Mommy gonna get a divide? A what? This girl in my class, her parents got a divide, and now she gets two birthdays and two Christmases. His question was like a punch in the stomach. You mean a divorce? And no, we're not getting one. But if you did, can I live with you? The weight of his words caused me to sit. I scooted closer to his bed. Well, why wouldn't you want to live with Mommy? I asked, not sure if there was an answer I wanted to hear. Mommy should always come when you call. What does that mean? His mouth opened to speak, but paused, and I got the sense he was rethinking his answer. After a few beats, he said, 
She doesn't know anything about Star Wars and thinks Pokemon is dumb. Well, now I understand. These are some pretty serious issues. Maybe we should talk about them at the next family meeting? I took a deep breath. But right now, I'd like to talk about why we're here and not at home. It's because I hurt myself. I didn't go to the bathroom. That's right. Mommy told me that- It's the water, Daddy. It wants to eat me. Oh, but Jacob, you know that's not- I'm not going near that water ever again. Before I could respond, there was a knock at the door. I turned as a nurse poked her head in, then stepped inside. Knock, knock. Dr. Adams recommended we try this. Is that a bedpan? Outside of a movie, I don't think I'd ever seen a real one. She nodded. It's kind of big, I know. But we don't have a children's ward at this hospital, so we don't have his size. She looked over at Jacob. Do you want to give it a try? Jacob looked at me for guidance. Go on, give it a go. Jacob sat on the thing in his bed. He seemed to like that there wasn't any water in it. And although he didn't go, gave me an idea. I called Gail and she said it was worth a try. The next day, upon arriving home, we showed him what Gail had bought. It was the largest toddler training toilet chair she could find. A kid's version of a bedpan that sits on the floor in the bathroom while a child learns how to take care of their business. On the packaging, it said, for use with ages six months to two years. <laughs> and it was odd seeing my five-year-old on it. But no weirder than a six-year-old in diapers or a ten-year-old breastfeeding, all things I've seen. Gail had even found a Pokemon one. Hey, check it out, buddy. You can take a crap right on Pikachu's face. Ew, swear jar, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but you have to clean it. You're a big boy, and that means dumping out your business in the toilet. Your mom and I will help you for the first few times, okay? Jacob nodded, less enthused. He looked over at the toilet as if it might grab him, then scooted the training chair as far away as possible. And that was that. Over the next few days, Gail and I helped him with the dumping and cleaning, and then he took over. We had our solution. Wasn't perfect, like a square band-aid on a round wound, but in my mind, it was over. A temporary fix until he grew out of whatever the hell this was. But, as I would soon learn, this wasn't the kind of thing you grow out of. Less than a month had passed, and I had all but forgotten about Jacob's irrational behavior when Gail met me at the front door one evening. Our five-year marriage, not once had Gail ever met me at the door. Come with me to the backyard. Hello to you, too. I followed her around the side of the house. She pointed to a spot by the fence. I could see flies. Hundreds. Ugh, something die back here? Gail shook her head. I could see she'd been crying. As I moved past her, the smell hit me. I gagged once, twice, then used my tie to cover my nose. Plastic beach shovels were scattered around, covered in what looked like mud. But it wasn't mud. The stench of human waste overwhelmed me. I vomited, just missing my shoes. I staggered back to Gale, unable to deal with the realization that our son had been burying doing his five-year-old best 
a month's worth of excrement. Back at the hospital, Dr. Adams gave me a child psychologist's number. He gave it to me because you wouldn't take it. Make an appointment. I already did. Tomorrow, 10 a.m. Gail stepped in some shit as she was walking away. I gagged. Good call. And then I threw up again. This time, my shoes weren't as lucky. Jacob saw the psychologist, Karen Matthews, three times a week for almost a month. I liked her. Bit young, but she really knew her stuff. And after one initial meeting with all of us, she met with Jacob alone. After about session nine or ten, she asked to meet with Gail and me while Jacob sat in the waiting room. There was a receptionist out there so Jacob wouldn't be alone, but Jacob protested. There was a bathroom right next to the waiting area. When the toilet was flushed, the sound of the swirling water caused Jacob to tremble. He was now at the point where he couldn't even be within ten feet of a toilet. Karen allowed Jacob to stay if he promised not to listen. He sat in the corner with headphones on and played a game on my phone as we began. I think he's getting worse. We keep his potty in the garage now. Hell, he brushes his teeth in the kitchen. I know. And you're correct. His situation is becoming paramount. Gail's eyes were red and wet. What's wrong with him? When we first met, I mentioned a possible diagnosis. And one of the reasons I called you in here today is because I'd like to make it official. He is suffering from an acute case of Tuolidi hydrophobia. Jesus, the fear of toilet water. How is that even a thing? Gail began to sob silently. I don't wish to spend our time focusing on the phobia itself. What Jacob and I have been working on in our last few meetings is dealing with what triggered the phobia. Right, the incident at the department store this past Christmas. Karen shook her head. It goes further back than that. And Jacob and I have been getting close. But every time we approach the event, he becomes blocked, very agitated, and shuts down. Is there a way to get over this block? Yes. And that's the next thing I'd like to talk to you about. During our last few sessions, we've been working on EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It is a technique that will allow Jacob to approach the event and reframe how he feels about it. I hope we can alter his fear and turn it into a source of strength. Today, I'd like to push past his block, deal with the event of origin, and start the process. I can't say I understood everything she said, but it all sounded positive. Any improvement in my son would be welcome. Are you asking our permission to do this? She smiled. I just wanted you to be aware of where we were at and what I'm hoping to accomplish today. Is it all right if we watch? Of course. Let's get started. We sat in the corner of the room closest to the door while Karen prepared Jacob. There was a long series of questions asking Jacob about the colors and smells in the room. After 15 minutes of this, Jacob leaned back and put his hands behind his head. He took long, steady breaths. I hadn't seen him this relaxed in months. He smiled, even when the conversation turned to the trauma at the department store. And what did the water try to do? Tried to eat me. But it didn't, did it? Nope. Why is that? Because water doesn't eat people, I wanted to shout. Jacob held up his hand as if he were thrusting a sword into the air. 
Because I am strong. Way stronger than the water. That's right, Jacob. Karen pulled something out of her pocket. I couldn't see what it was because of where I sat, but I could see that Jacob's eyes were locked on it. I leaned a bit to catch a glimpse. Karen held a small toy. Kids call them fidget spinners. She used an index finger to give it a slight turn every few seconds, and with another finger, she started tapping on its center. So there was a turn, a tap, a turn, a tap. It continued like this for several minutes. Can you remember a time when you were going potty, but you didn't feel strong? A time before the water tried to eat you at the department store. With his eyes locked on the toy, Jacob nodded. Can you tell me where that was? At home. Are you alone? No. Mommy's home, but she's sick. I keep calling, but she won't come. Did you need her? Yes. Mommy, help me. I'm falling. I looked over at Gail. She was shaking. What the fuck, Gail? Without meeting my gaze, she got up and left. I followed, stopping only to shut the door to Karen's office. I grabbed Gail by the wrist. She whirled around. It's not my fault. What is Jacob talking about? She covered her face with her hands. Oh God, oh God, please don't let this be my fault. I guided her to a couch. The receptionist's eyes were on us, but I didn't care. What happened? Gail wiped her nose. (laughs) It was over a year ago, almost two. We told Jacob he couldn't use the toddler practice seat anymore. He had to be a big boy and use the toilet without it. You remember? Yes. Well, one time when he... Gail? What the fuck happened? He fell in. Lost his grip or something. Was he hurt? No, but he was... stuck. Couldn't lift himself out. Okay, so he called out and you came and got him? I heard him calling. Over and over. Mommy, help. And you helped him, right? She looked at me, clearly reliving the scene. Her lips tightened. Why didn't you help him? Because I was drunk. I collapsed on the couch and just listened to him. I was sick of him. Sick of you. Jesus. How long was he in there? She put her hands over her face. Three hours. When I finally got him out, I made a promise never to speak of what happened. Bury it. Just bury it. Shit. Gail. She dropped her hands and faced me, eyes angry. You want to know why I was drinking? I stood up. I don't give a fuck. She grabbed my hand. I unpacked your suitcase from your Boston trip. There was lipstick all over one of your shirt collars. Jesus, David, how cliche can you get? I leaned down, bringing my face close to hers. You stupid bitch. Our client took us to a strip club. A stripper sat on me, kissed my neck, and tried to sell me a lap dance. I left and took a cab back to the hotel. You didn't... She slid off the couch and fell to the ground. I'm sorry, David. I pulled my hand away. Go home. I walked back into Karen's office. I shut the door quickly. I didn't want Jacob to hear his mother cry. Calm down, Jacob. Karen was on her knees in front of Jacob's chair. Jacob kicked wildly with both feet. I can't get out. I can't. That's not where you are right now. 
Tell me what colors are in my office. Mommy, where are you? I walked over to Karen's side. She held a handout indicating not to interfere. Jacob, I need you to listen to me. Karen put her hands on his shoulders. Mommy should come when I call. A crash came from the waiting room. It sounded like furniture being flipped over. It was punctuated by a blood-curdling scream. Gail's scream. I assumed Gail was throwing a tantrum, but then there was another scream, distinctly not Gail's. The receptionist. I moved towards the office door and looked back at Jacob. Gail screamed again, and like an echo, so did the receptionist. I hurried into the waiting room, and my left foot instantly slipped on the wet floor. I kept myself from falling by grabbing a coffee table that had been upended. I stepped on drenched magazines. The receptionist was on the floor, clothes and hair wet, one shoe gone. But Gail was nowhere to be found. Where's my wife? The woman didn't say anything, just pointed toward the short hall heading to the bathroom. I jumped over the table and turned the corner just as Gail screamed again. I saw a pair of hands holding onto the doorframe inches from the ground. She pulled her head up into the hall and caught my gaze. Help me, David! I dove, grabbed her hands and held tight. We were both pulled into the bathroom, sliding on the wet floor. My head slammed into the sink and I lost my grip. I laid back and looked up in horror. A funnel of water encased my wife's legs. As it swirled around, sharp ripples gouged into her thighs. Blood streaked the water, winding around like red stripes on a candy cane. The funnel lifted her up, then slammed her against the stall door. Gail reached for me, eyes pleading. But all I did, all I could do was watch as the funnel swallowed her hips, then her torso. The twisting water pulled her into the stall, and that's when I noticed where the tornado of liquid came from. The toilet. The funnel began to sink into the bowl, getting smaller and smaller. The water made almost no sound, which seemed to amplify the snapping and crunching of Gail's bones. As it pulled my wife in, she said the last thing she would ever say to me. David, it hurts. The lid came down with a slam. Water dripped down each side of the bowl, clean and clear. When I was finally able to take a breath, I felt something in my hand. I unclenched a fist and found Gail's wedding ring resting in the center of my palm. Must have come off when I had a hold of her hands. Dizzy, I crawled over to the toilet. I lifted the seat. The water was still, quiet. No sign of Gail. No blood, no hair, no bone, nothing. Not even her scent. She was gone. I looked at the ring in my hand and tried to remember when we bought it, where we bought it, anything. I couldn't. I just let it drop into the bowl. I watched it sink, then flushed. Jacob and I are Canadian now. It's not so bad. Bit cold. Nice health care. We made the sudden move up north when I began to realize the police were not on board with the toilet-ate-my-wife story. I don't blame them. I did think that the receptionist corroboration would help, and it did, until parts of Gale began showing up in different sewage treatment plants across the Greater Plains area. To put it mildly, it horrified the public 
and the police were pressured to find a suspect. Since there was no one but me, up to the Great White North we went. Not a difficult job for an internet security expert. In fact, the only hard part was convincing Jacob that our new last name couldn't be Skywalker. We've been up here a year, and Jacob, who now goes by Luke, shows no signs of his Tualiti hydrophobia. Like my wife, it's gone. I've given it a fair amount of thought, and I'm still not sure if Gail's gift was the cause of Jacob's phobia. Did she manifest something that terrorized him? I don't know. But when it comes to Gail's death, I had a theory, and it was comforting for a while. I liked to think that her guilt over what she may have done to Jacob took physical form through her gift and sentenced herself to her own form of punishment. I used to believe in some way that it was kind of redeeming. She wasn't a great mom, but at least she knew it and felt bad about it. Anyway, I don't think that anymore. On Jacob's birthday, we went out for steaks, like men. As we waited for the food to arrive, I thought I should check in with him about his mom. He hadn't talked about her. And honestly, at the time, with all the covert relocating, I was glad. I had my hands full. But we were settled now. It was time. Hey, Jacob? Luke? Right, Luke. You ever think about mom? No. He put a finger on the rim of his water glass. Well... Do you miss her? No. He started moving his finger in a slow circle over his glass. Okay. Why not? He looked at me, eyes narrow. Mommy should come when you call. A chill moved through me as I stared at his glass. The liquid moved. I opened my mouth to ask him a question. One I did not want to ask for fear he might answer. Did you hurt your mom? But in the end, I didn't need to. The answer was in his eyes and in the liquid in the glass, now swirling like water in a toilet bowl. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. 
please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.